Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and incest that some listeners may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. When Sante Kimes was ready to cash out on one of her many pieces of property, she didn't call up her local real estate agent. No, selling a house was tedious. Instead, Sante enlisted a trustworthy arsonist. In July of 1990, 56-year-old Sante paid $3,000 to an acquaintance, 59-year-old Elma Holmgren, to torch her $2 million mansion in Honolulu, Hawaii. Afterward, she simply walked away from the charred remains and filed a claim for the full value of the property. But this wasn't the first time that Sante tried to pull a fast one with an insurance company. This time, investigators combed through all of her claims with a skeptical eye. In January of 1991, the investigators caught up with arsonist Elmer Holmgren and he admitted to starting the blaze himself. In exchange for leniency, he agreed to wear a wire to try to record Sante discussing the crime. But before they could arrange the sting, Holmgren left town. He was scheduled to join the Kimes on a vacation and he didn't want to back out afraid it would look suspicious. Holmgren was never seen again. He was likely the first person Sante killed, though she was never charged. She's also suspected of murdering David Kasdin after he threatened to report her for blackmail. Syed Bilal Ahmed after he threatened to report her for forgery. And Irene Silverman after she threatened to report her for fraud. If anyone tried to put an end to her lifestyle of crime, Sante Kimes put an end to them. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we met prolific hustler Sante Kimes. Her childhood of poverty motivated her to spend the rest of her life stealing and swindling. Eventually, she involved her own son, Kenny Kimes, grooming him in the art of the con. This week, we'll follow Sante and Kenny's biggest gambit, 
to snatch a $10 million mansion out from under New York socialite Irene Silverman. We'll see why the scam went off the rails, the extreme measures the Kimeses took, and how it eventually led the police to capture Mommy and Clyde. After Kenneth Kimes Sr. died in 1994, 59-year-old Sante recruited a new partner in crime, her 19-year-old son, Kenny. He was complicit in her small-time schemes for most of his life, but this marked a clear progression. A friend of Kenny's said of this change, she turned him into the dark side and he got to like it, to the point where he became frighteningly violent. She got him to kill people. Psychiatrist Robert Lifton identified several traits of coercive environments. He included control of communication, emotional and behavioral manipulation, agreement that the ideology is faultless, and the classification of those not sharing the ideology as inferior and not worthy of respect. Sante dictated Kenny's entire life from the day he was born, homeschooling him, picking his friends, and generally isolating him from the outside world. She told him, we're superior and better than everyone else. We're royalty. Kenny, everybody uses 5% of their brains. We use 75%. Kenny now served as Sante's general henchman, helping her forge documents, burn down properties, and threaten anyone who tried to stand in their way. 1998 was a banner year for 23-year-old Kenny Kimes and his mother, 64-year-old Sante. It was also the year that brought their downfall. It started in February, when they stole a car. Sante used one of her tried-and-true techniques, walking into a dealership dressed in jewels and designer clothing and offering to pay cash for a new car. She selected a forest green Lincoln town car and wrote the dealer a business check from the Aga Khan International Corporation. The check for $15,000 predictably bounced. But Grand Theft Auto was only the beginning. In March, Sante and Kenny murdered 63-year-old David Kasdin. Kasdin was a longtime Kimes family associate. A former insurance adjuster, he signed off on some of their earliest insurance fraud schemes in the 1970s. He agreed to help Sante hide her late husband's assets from his rightful inheritors. She surreptitiously transferred the deed for their mansion in Las Vegas to Kasdin. But a few years later, Sante used the Vegas house as collateral to secure a $280,000 loan. When she failed to make any payments, the bank held Kazdin responsible. He told Sante to make it right or he'd report her to the police. Not only for the forged loan, but for every other scheme he'd helped her execute. Instead of cowing to Kazdin, Sante sent Kenny to nullify him. On March 13, 1998, Kenny shot David Kazdin in the face. 
Then he wrapped his body in black trash bags, stuffed him into the trunk of a car, and left him in a dumpster. Then mother and son hit the road, driving to Palm Beach, Florida in the stolen green Lincoln. They scammed their way into a free room at the Palm Beach Polo and Country Club. Instead of laying low, Sante mixed with the wealthy elite at the club, running up huge tabs in other members' names. This was also where she heard about her next mark, 82-year-old Irene Silverman. The experience of squirreling away Kimes' estate afforded Sante a crash course in basic real estate fraud. She did an impressive job redistributing and obscuring his estate to effectively block the rest of his family from inheriting. But by 1998, Sante had already spent a great deal of the liquid assets. What was left were physical properties owned by shell companies like Aga Khan International. But the properties were essentially useless unless she could sell them and the paperwork required to make a legitimate sale would completely expose her fraud. Unless she could find a buyer willing to spend millions of dollars on a property without asking any questions, which was unlikely, Sante was cash poor. So she started looking for a property that she could assume control of without filing any paperwork. She wanted something she could sell without any red tape. Enter Irene Silverman, or rather, her $10 million mansion. Irene moved to New York City in 1933 and joined the Corps du Ballet at Radio City Music Hall. She eventually married a real estate mogul and millionaire, Samuel Silverman. The jewel of their personal holdings was a five-story mansion in Manhattan's Upper East Side. After Samuel's death in 1980, Irene converted the bottom three floors into luxury apartments, keeping the top two floors for her personal use. She was fastidious about the upkeep of the building, requiring that her tenants agree to a weekly cleaning by her own staff. She was also quite choosy with who she rented to. Most of her tenants were personal recommendations from friends. Sante used this angle to set up a rental in early April of 1998. She called Irene on a Sunday afternoon, posing as a woman named Ava. Her employer, Manny Guerin, needed a place to stay while he was in New York for business. Ava said she had heard about Irene's apartment through Rudy Vacari. Rudy was Irene's butcher and friend of 40 years. Dropping his name made Irene lower her guard, as Sante intended. With Rudy's blessing, Irene agreed to rent Mr. Guerin Unit 1B for $6,000 a month. He could move in on June 15th. But when Irene called Rudy to check the reference, she wasn't able to speak to him. He was out of town on vacation. If they'd connected, he would have told her that he had absolutely no idea who Manny Guerin was. 
On Monday, June 15, 1998, Manny Guerin, played by Kenny Kimes, moved into apartment 1B, paying the first month's rent in cash. Irene Silverman quickly labelled him a low-class jerk with the smell of jail on him. In the entry hall of the mansion, a security camera recorded everyone who entered and exited the building. Irene noticed almost immediately that any time Manny passed the camera, he hugged his body to the wall, trying to stay out of frame. He also didn't let any of the staff into the apartment to clean, even though it was part of the rental agreement. Creepiest of all, Irene noticed that Manny often stood at his door to eavesdrop on whatever conversation was happening in the lobby. She could see the shadow of his feet through the gap in the bottom of the door. Irene was so concerned about her strange new tenant that she drew a sketch of his face and took down a description of his and Ava's physical features. If Manny tried to skip out on the rent, Irene had plenty of details to bring to the police. On June 20th, 1998, less than a week after he moved in, Irene's house manager, Valerie McLeod, got a strange phone call from Manny Guerin's assistant. Ava, aka Sante, told Valerie that she was calling from Mexico though the caller ID said she was calling from the Pierre Hotel in New York City. She said, My boss just called me and told me that the lady has been saying mean things about you. Don't go back there. Don't go back there to work. Valerie pressed her. What was Irene saying? she asked. But Ava wouldn't tell her. Manny would give her the details instead. It was a classic con artist technique. She was trying to drive a wedge between Irene and her staff and recruit them to her side instead. The next day, Valerie met Manny at a restaurant down the street. He insisted on meeting in person because all the workers at the house were saying bad things about her and he felt they might be listening to him now. But when they sat down together, Manny didn't want to talk about the supposed gossip spreading through the house. Instead, he wanted Irene Silverman's social security number. He accused Irene of coming into his room when he wasn't there and stealing his documents. He needed her social security number so he could run a background check on her and see if she was a criminal. Valerie who had worked for Irene for a decade, immediately discounted his accusations. She didn't believe for a moment that she would steal from a tenant. Then Manny asked for the name of Irene's former accountant in another attempt to acquire her social. But Valerie, seeing every red flag, gave him nothing. So after only three weeks of living in the apartment, Irene had concluded that Manny Guerin and his assistant had to go. On the night of July 4th, 1998, Irene held a dinner party at her home. At one point in the evening, the subject of Irene's troublesome tenant came up. 
She'd been open in the last few weeks about her concerns over Manny, so everyone at the table was familiar with his strangeness. She announced that her problematic tenant was due for eviction. She planned to call her lawyer on Monday to draw up the paperwork. She already had the feeling that he was going to try and skip out on her without paying his bills. Then the party continued on, finally wrapping up after midnight. As Irene bid her guests goodnight, she pressed a small, personalized thank you present into each of their hands. It was something she did frequently, truly grateful for their company. None of them realized it was the last time they would ever see her alive. Coming up, Sante and Kenny Kimes make their move on Irene Silverman. Now back to the story. On Wednesday, July 1st, 1998, New York City notary Don Aoki got a call from a new client, Anthony Wynne. In reality, Wynne was 23-year-old Kenny Kimes. On the phone, Wynne explained that his grandmother, played by 64-year-old Sante, was bedridden and dying. They needed a notary willing to come to their home so she could take care of some paperwork before the inevitable. Aoki agreed to meet Wynne at a hotel that afternoon. Then they walked a few blocks to the Silverman mansion. Inside one of the bedrooms, Aoki met a woman impersonating Wynne's elderly grandmother. <coughs> Sante lay in the bed with a blanket pulled up to her chin. The rest of her face was obscured by large red-framed glasses the same kind Irene Silverman wore. Fake red hair peeked out from under a Victorian-style nightcap. Aoki thought she looked like a cartoon character. They wanted Aoki to notarize a deed. But when he looked over the paperwork, he was shocked that it had already been signed. The whole point of notarizing something was to certify that the signature is genuine. He refused to stamp anything he didn't watch the signatory fill out. Scrambling, Kenny produced another document that was also signed by Irene and notarized by a different party. But still, Aoki refused and left. Undeterred, the next morning, Mr. Wynne called another notary, Noel Sweeney. Again, he met her at the hotel and then walked her to the mansion where Sante reprised her role as the infirm Granny Silverman, bundled in bed. Later, Noelle told police that she couldn't remember if she actually watched Sante sign the deed in front of her or if it was signed before she arrived. She was too caught up in the grandness of the mansion and its lavish furnishings. With Noel's signatory stamp, Sante and Kenny successfully forged a new deed for Irene's $10 million mansion, transferring ownership to one of their shell companies, the Atlantis Group Limited. They were ready to assume control of her building. For that, they needed reinforcements. Sante summoned 55-year-old Stanley Patterson to join them in New York City. 
He was a typical Kimes lackey, down on his luck and sucked in by Sante's promises of a good life. Six months earlier, he'd responded to their ad looking for a handyman to fix things in the Las Vegas mansion. But what he'd actually done was help Sante and Kenny load up the house's furniture into a U-Haul. Once it was empty, they asked him to douse the house in gasoline and set it on fire. From that point on, Patterson was a loyal footman. This time, Sante wanted Patterson to come and manage an apartment for her. First, they would evict all the current tenants. Then, they would fix it up to sell. When Patterson questioned how they'd forced the tenants to move out, Sante barked, Bring your toys. On Sunday, July 5th, 1998, 82-year-old Irene Silverman disappeared. The last person to see her was her maid, Marta Aracelis Rivera, who was the only member of the household staff working that day. At 11.45 a.m., Irene asked Rivera to do some laundry and take Georgie, her boxer, for a walk. Then she went into her home office in apartment 1A to do some work. A few hours later, at 2.20 p.m., one of Irene's friends called for her. But when Rivera went to get Irene, she found her office door closed and locked. Assuming that she was taking a nap, Rivera told the friend she'd call back later. By 4.40 p.m., Irene still hadn't come out of her room. Worried, Rivera banged on the door and yelled as loudly as she could, but there was no answer. She retrieved the spare set of keys and opened the door, concerned that Irene had suffered some kind of medical emergency. But Irene wasn't inside apartment 1A. It was empty. By 5 p.m., Rivera had searched all five floors of the mansion. Irene Silverman was nowhere to be found. Rivera knew that Irene would never have left the house without telling someone, let alone by herself. So Rivera called the police. The officers did another thorough search of the house, checking every corner and air shaft for any sign of Irene. In her home office, they found one of her closet doors unlocked and the shelves ransacked. Irene usually kept $17,500 in cash in her closet, a habit born of the Great Depression. But it was gone from its hiding place. On Irene's desk, they found her sketch of Manny Guerin and notes on his strange behavior. There was an entry from that very morning, July 5th. Irene wrote that Manny, wearing only socks on his feet, suddenly appeared in the door of her office. He asked her if she had a copy of either Barron's or the Wall Street Journal for him to borrow. Even an out-of-date one would be fine. Then she wrote another detailed physical description, observing that he was more put together than usual, his hair washed and gelled. By 6.30 p.m., apartment 1B, rented to Manny Guerin, was the only room in the building officers hadn't been able to enter. 
The other tenants had consented to a police search of their units over the phone, but no one could get a hold of Mr. Guerin. The police were hesitant to force their way inside, but Rivera insisted. She would take responsibility if it caused any problems, citing the situation as a clear emergency. So the building super removed the door by its screws. But apartment 1B was also deserted. The only sign of its former residence was a faint impression in the bed's comforter and a single shirt hanging in the closet. Manny Guerin and his assistant had vanished, along with Irene Silverman. As they looked around the apartment, police discovered several wads of used black duct tape balled up in the trash can. Rivera believes that Kenny used the magazine inquiry to scope out Irene's office and make sure she was alone. Then, he and Sante grabbed her. Around the same time that Rivera first realized Irene was missing, Sante met her goon, Stanley Patterson, in Midtown Manhattan. Over a cocktail, she reiterated her plans for Irene's apartment building. She wanted Patterson to act as the new manager and start evicting the tenants. First, he needed to change all the locks on all the doors. Sante had no idea that a joint task force of the FBI, NYPD and LAPD was watching her every move and listening to everything she said to Patterson through a hidden wire. Her lackey had turned informant a month previously. As it turned out, Kenny Kimes had used a gun registered in Samuel Patterson's name to murder David Kasdan back in March. The LAPD eventually tracked Patterson down and threatened him with serious charges, unless he cooperated with them completely. When Sante summoned him to New York City to run Irene's building, Patterson immediately called the LAPD as part of the agreement. They decided to use him as bait to apprehend Sante and Kenny for the murder of David Kasdan. Which is why the task force kept their distance, watching Sante and Patterson eat and drink the time away. They were waiting for Kenny to show up. If they grabbed Sante alone, Kenny might flee and disappear completely. Finally, after 7 p.m., Kenny appeared. The back of his shirt was soaked in sweat and he looked tired, like he'd been doing something physically taxing. He hugged them both, first Sante and then Patterson. With the latter, Kenny felt a bulletproof vest hiding under his shirt. But before he could sound the alarm, Patterson gave the signal to the waiting task force. In the next moment, a dozen agents pounced. Before Sante could even react, she was in handcuffs. Kenny put up a fight, but was eventually tackled. As the officers searched him, removing a pair of brass knuckles and a knife, Kenny pissed himself. Once they arrived at FBI headquarters, Kenny and Sante were placed in different rooms. 
the FBI searched them more thoroughly and asked some initial questions. Hoping to keep the Kimeses talking as long as possible without a lawyer, the task force presented a warrant that only mentioned the grand theft auto charge, the stolen Lincoln Town Car, instead of David Kasdan's murder. During the agent's search of Kenny, they found several credit cards in his wallet, none of which were in his own name. He also carried a Florida driver's license for Manny Guerin and two sets of house keys fastened together with a large safety pin painted with red nail polish. The keys were later determined to belong to Irene Silverman. Authorities also found a parking garage stub time-stamped 6.40 p.m., presumably for the stolen Lincoln. Throughout his interrogation, Kenny reassured the agents that everything was just a misunderstanding. He said several times, the car is no problem. We can take care of that. We can clear this whole situation up. Can I post a bond or bail and just get out of here? We have the money. And the agents got nowhere with their other questions. Kenny was hesitant to answer anything they asked. He even refused to confirm he was actually Kenneth Kimes Jr., saying, I'm not sure I should answer that. In truth, he didn't know what he should say without talking with Sante first. It was con artistry's golden rule. Coordinate your story before you commit to any details. You can't get caught in a lie if you don't say anything at all. Sante had trained her son not to think for himself and only spout the party line she provided. He asked the agents constantly, How's my mother doing? Can I speak to her? In the next room over, Sante Kimes was in the middle of her own search. The agent that carried Sante's purse remarked that it was incredibly heavy. He was sure he'd find a gun inside. Instead, he found over $10,000 in cash. Sante casually explained that it was spending money. She was on vacation in the city after all. Agents also found a cell phone, Irene Silverman's passport, her bank books, and other documents in Irene's name. Sante explained, Irene's a friend of mine. She's a ballerina, and she lets me hold her papers and documents sometimes. The officers simply noted the information and moved on. They were here for David Kasdan. They didn't know that 82-year-old Irene Silverman had been reported missing only hours before, and they had no idea that they already had her kidnappers in custody. Coming up, Police connect the dots between Irene Silverman and David Kasdan. Now, the conclusion to the story. It wasn't until 5 a.m. on Tuesday, July 7, 1998, that the NYPD made an important connection. Officers working 82-year-old Irene Silverman's disappearance realized that their number one suspect was already in custody. The missing tenant, Manny Guerin, was actually 23-year-old Kenny Kimes. 
even though both Kenny and his mother, 64-year-old Sante Kimes, were found with Irene's property on their person, none of the officers had made the connection. They were too focused on their real goal, nailing the Kimeses for the murder of David Kasdan. That afternoon, the police brought Sante back in for questioning. Even though Kenny was the main suspect, he'd already demonstrated that he wouldn't answer any questions without his mother's approval. Just Mirandizing him the night of his arrest had taken almost an hour. With every question, he shouted through the open door to the next room where his mother sat handcuffed. Mom, what should I do? Is it okay? Only after she yelled back her consent would Kenny agree to each portion of the standardized warning. Asking him for details on Irene Silverman was pointless. Instead, Officer Tommy Hackett tried to supplicate Sante. He wasn't here to accuse her or charge her for the disappearance. He just wanted to find Irene. But Sante was never the type to relinquish the upper hand. If she had information that he was after, he would have to pay for it somehow. Quid pro quo. And until Sante figured out what she wanted, she played dumb. How did she know Irene was actually missing and the cops weren't trying to pull a fast one on her? Hackett countered with the front page of the New York Daily News with Irene's face under the headline, Socialite Missing. But she continued to brush him off. I don't know what you're talking about. You should really put your energy into finding this woman. Maybe she's out walking her dog. Eventually, her blasé attitude made Hackett lose his cool. He snapped at her. She needed to help them find this poor 82-year-old woman. After his outburst, Sante refused to say another word without her lawyer. But even without the Kimes' testimony, investigators were still able to make progress in Irene's disappearance. Using the parking garage stub they found on Kenny, officers recovered the stolen Lincoln Town Car and conducted a search. The back seat was piled with evidence. An empty box for a stun gun, a mason jar full of liquid rohypnol, more commonly known as the date rape drug, mace, plastic handcuffs, several wigs, and 15 subject notebooks. There was also a suitcase. Inside was $22,000 cash, a gun, bullets, forged social security cards, and a forged power of attorney that granted Sante control of Irene Silverman's estate. When it came time to pop the trunk, the officers braced themselves for the worst. Were they about to find the missing octogenarian? Indeed, Inside the trunk was a black duffel bag, large enough to fit a grown man, but it was empty. There was no trace of Irene Silverman. But as the investigators started to inventory the items from the car, they realized that they had recovered a gold mine in the 15 subject notebooks. 
the pages were filled with Sante's notes on every scheme she'd run in the last five years. There was an entire notebook dedicated solely to the Irene Silverman scam. The officers pored over the pages and found details of a call she made to a New York City title and insurance company. She asked them to run a background check on Irene's $10 million mansion. This was how she learned the property was clear of any debts or loans. Then she had the company fax her a copy of Irene's deed. She used it to create the forgery transferring ownership to her shell company. On a page of notes about Irene Silverman, Sante had scribbled, What is Irene's background? Get her social security number. Stun gun. After months of investigation across state lines, police determined that Sante and Kenny Kimes murdered Irene Silverman. Though they still weren't able to find her body, it was clear from the evidence and the plans detailed in the notebooks that that was what occurred. Sante and Kenny were indicted on December 16, 1998. Citing Sante's previous attempts to escape the hands of justice, the Kimeses were denied bail. Sante's defense attorney, Jose Muniz, was an experienced criminal lawyer. Yet Sante Kimes repeatedly surprised him with her compulsive need to run a scheme. Just like she did with everyone else, Sante constantly worked an angle, testing Muniz's boundaries, seeing what she could make him do for her. Psychologist Maria Konnikova described this as the foot-in-the-door technique. By using a series of escalating asks, Sante tried to convince Muniz to do more and more extreme behavior. Konnikova wrote, Clearly, if I've said yes to you in the past, that means that you're worth it. Otherwise, it would have been very stupid of me to say yes before. She once asked Muniz to buy a spy microphone, the kind that is small enough to be easily hidden. Then, at their next attorney-client meeting, he should plant the microphone under the table. Sante would innocently find it and they could make it look like the district attorney was trying to spy on them. She could angle for a mistrial because they tried to violate her right to attorney-client privilege. But this may have simply been a setup for the other side of the foot-in-the-door technique. Konnikova described door-in-the-face technique, where you ask for something really crazy first, and I say no, but then if you ask for even a pretty big favor later, I become more likely to say yes because I feel guilty for saying no earlier. After the microphone plot, she asked Muniz to help her forge a power of attorney document for the late Kenneth Kimes Sr., granting her control of his entire estate. After she was arrested for Irene's disappearance, Kenneth's rightful heirs had taken more aggressive steps to reclaim their inheritance. Power of attorney would go a long way in the drawn-out legal battle. Of course, this would mean forging Kenneth's signature posthumously, but Sante downplayed the offense, 
she told Muniz to draw up the paperwork and bring it to their next meeting. She'd fill it out and sign it on behalf of her deceased husband. But Muniz refused and threatened to walk off her case. In addition to Sante's outlandish criminal requests, her attorney noticed an uncomfortable dynamic between her and her son, Kenny. They acted like lovers. Once the trial finally began in the spring of 2000, court proceedings were some of the only times that Sante and Kenny were allowed to be in the same room together. They appeared to soak each other up in these moments. The presiding judge admonished them repeatedly during the proceedings to stop holding hands until he was eventually forced to place them at opposite ends of the defense table. During recess, instead of talking to their lawyers, the pair walked to the furthest end of the room and whispered to each other. Muniz said, we'd look at each other and wonder, what the hell is this? They're figuring out what to tell us and what not to tell us. And at the same time, they'd be kissing and holding hands. This was not just the peck on the cheek kind of kiss. When he interviewed possible character witnesses for the Kimeses, Muniz heard several stories about their co-sleeping habits, not just in the same room, but in the same bed. And Sante often boasted about her penchant for sleeping nude. As we covered in last week's episode, it's possible that Sante suffered sexual abuse from her adoptive father. If that's the case, she may have felt compelled to continue the cycle of abuse with her own son, a common form of rationalization. Researchers Freda Briggs and Russell Hawkins found that many abusers suffered sexual abuse themselves. They wrote, Sex abusers often regarded their own abuse as normal, sometimes enjoyable. Offenders who rationalize away the effects of the abuse they suffered may also rationalize away the damage they do when sexually abusing children. However, in Sante's case, her intimate relationship with her own son may have been more about her compulsive need for control rather than an attempt to normalize abuse. From the time Kenny was a child, every action he took, every word he spoke, was at her directive. It's not a far leap that Kenny's sex life would also fall under her purview. Her complete dominance of him was what made Kenny the perfect accomplice. Seeing the dynamic between mother and son, defense attorney Jose Muniz tried to convince Kenny to split their cases. If he was tried separately, he could make a better defense by saying he was brainwashed by his mother. If they were tried together, he wouldn't be able to introduce anything incriminating about his co-defendant. But Kenny refused to leave his mother's side. They'd ride out the trial together, no matter the outcome. On May 18th, 2000, after 14 weeks of proceedings, the jury decided 65-year-old Sante and 25-year-old Kenny Kimes' fates. They found them guilty 
on 58 and 60 counts respectively, including murder, kidnapping, robbery, and a host of other fraud charges. They were sentenced to 120 and 125 years in prison. The presiding judge declared, Sante Kimes is surely the most degenerate defendant who has ever appeared in this courtroom, and her degeneracy extends even to the willful corruption of her own son. It is clear that Ms. Kimes has spent virtually all her life plotting and scheming, exploiting, manipulating, and preying upon the vulnerable and the gullible at every opportunity. As Sante was escorted out of the courtroom to the jail van, she passed a sea of waiting reporters. She classified the guilty verdict as a setback and continued to proclaim her innocence, telling them, We don't know where Irene Silverman is. Wherever she is, I pray to God she's all right. After they were convicted in New York, Sante and Kenny waited for extradition to California to finally face justice for the murder of David Kasdan. While they waited, Sante continued to scheme. After only a week, her cellmate reported to officers that Sante was trying to convince her to help her escape. She was placed in a more secure facility, but continued to skirt the rules. When she was repeatedly discovered to be out of bounds, Sante was placed in solitary. Her phone privileges were revoked, cutting off her one lifeline to Kenny. Even worse, she had already arranged for a jailhouse interview with Court TV a few days after she was sequestered. On the day the cameras arrived, Kenny Kimes faced them alone. Halfway through the interview, seemingly unprovoked, Kenny suddenly grabbed the female reporter. He trapped her in a headlock and grabbed her pen. As he dragged her into the far corner of the room, Kenny held the pen to her neck, barking, Back off! He demanded that someone get the governor on the phone to stop Sante's transfer to California, where she would likely face the death penalty. The standoff lasted four hours, until one of the guards was finally able to tackle Kenny. Eight more years were tacked onto his sentence. He spent the next four in solitary. By the time the trial for David Kasdan finally moved forward in 2004, 29-year-old Kenny Kimes was a broken man. He'd spent the last four years alone, unable to speak with his mother. When the district attorney approached him with a plea bargain, he took it. In exchange for life in prison instead of the death penalty, Kenny confessed to the murders of David Kasdan, Irene Silverman, and yet another victim, Syed Bilal Ahmed. Syed was a manager at a Cayman Islands bank. He had suspicions that Sante was forging Kenneth Kimes Sr.'s signature on account withdrawal slips. Kenny confessed that he killed Syed to keep him from talking 
and dumped his body in the ocean. In his statement, he implicated Sante in all these crimes as well. Kenny later said, I went back to my cell and wrote in my journal, Tattletale, tattletale, too bad you're going straight to hell. I am no longer the son who will do anything for his mother. I ratted my mom out. If I didn't, we would both go to death row. Now we get to live. I feel dead already. God have mercy on us. No one else will. If she felt betrayed by her protege, Sante didn't suffer regret long. She died 10 years later in May of 2014 at the age of 79. Kenny is currently serving a life sentence at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. He's working on a book about his life to keep other young people from going down the same bad path that he did. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Sante and Kenny Kimes, amongst the many sources we used, we found Gene King's book, Dead End, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Kerry Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Con Artist was written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden.